Hello, it's Peter from The Cine Skinny. Before we get started with this week's episode, we just wanted to acknowledge the really terrible situation over at the Edinburgh Film Festival and Filmhouse. Uh, basically, the charity that runs EIFF and Filmhouse has gone into administration on the day we're putting this episode out. This is news. It's going to have huge impacts for everyone as we go on, and I'm sure it's something we're going to talk more about on the pod. But for now, we just want to say that we're thinking of all the staff and everyone who's worked so hard to bring great films to Filmhouse, both in Edinburgh and Aberdeen and the EIFF. Uh, just thanks to everyone who's worked there for all the work they've done and uh, solidarity to everyone. And yeah, that's really all we have to say on it for now. On with the pod, but we will speak soon. Hello and welcome back to the Cine Skinny. It's that film podcast from the team behind the Skinny magazine. The boys are back in town. It's the lads. Anna Heat has gone to London. She's on her way to London Film Festival. So it's me, Peter, with Jamie and Lewis. Hello, how are you both? Not too bad. Good. Cool. Well, that's that sorted. That says that small talk out of the way. Right, before we start, in order for this episode to make sense, we have to plug some stuff. Unfortunately, that is the way of the world. So we have some screenings coming up of the Glaswegian filmmaker Brian M. Ferguson. We're doing like a kind of career retrospective of his weird, horrible, faint-inducing horror films at uh, Summer Hall in Edinburgh on the 13th of October and CCA in Glasgow on the 25th of October. So as a way to plug that and make people get tickets and come, we're going to do a kind of retrospective of some of his films and the kind of thing to expect if you see those films at the screenings we're putting on Lewis Help. <laughs> I think you've got it. I think you've you've nailed you've stuck the landing. Excellent. People listening aren't to know that took three or four tries. Um, so we're going to talk about Brian M. Ferguson. We're also going to talk about All Night Horror Madness, so the cameo All Nighter that's coming back uh, the weekend that this podcast comes out, and we're also going to be talking about some other films and things that are happening. But we do have one more thing to plug. We are working with Mubi, the good folks over at Mubi. We've got uh, two screenings of The African Desperate, which is Martin Sims's new film about an MFA graduate who is getting through the last days of her art degree uh, and has fully got tired of all of her course mates' horseshit. Is that an accurate way of putting it, Jamie? Yeah, it sounds like a really cool satire on the New York art scene. And I'm presuming it will work for MD, who's part of the art scene, because obviously it's full of pretentious idiots. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> no, not, not to like bag in all the art, art scenes, but you know, there's got a, a fair few um, arsenals involved. Yes. Oh, oh, yes. So, we're doing two screenings of The African Desperate, which will be free to anyone who wants to come along to them. Uh, we've got a screening at the Cameo in Edinburgh on the 18th of October and one at the CCA in Glasgow on the 20th of October. So if you want to come along to those, go to theskinny.co.uk slash tickets and you can get signed up for those. Free screening, I think there'll be like 7 o'clock kickoff, but you'll be able to find like the times on the website. But yeah, come on down. Very good film. You'll have a lovely time. And it's free. So just come along. Just come along. It's free. Come along, it's free, come on. Jamie, save me from myself. Tell me what you have been watching recently. Well, to take us off horror for a wee bit, I have been getting stuck into the Filmhouse's pre-code season, which is ongoing. Um, so the film I saw last was uh, The Red-Headed Woman. Uh, actually, I should say, if you don't know about pre-code, it's films made in the 30s before the Hollywood censorship machine was really enforced. So places like NGM and Warner Brothers and Paramount were all competing against each other to take advantage of that and make and just fill the films full of sex and violence and kind of tough living. Um, so the 30s films feel a bit more gritty than the films that would come in the 40s and 50s, which, which is kind of known as the Golden Age, which are a bit more kind of family friendly and cheery. But these ones are a bit more kind of down and dirty and full of like drugs and sex. Um, so the film I went to see was Red Hair Woman, which stars Jean Harlow um, as this kind of shop girl who's trying to kind of scratch her way up in society. And the way she's going to do that is she's going to marry this rich guy, this uh, this guy who owns the biggest coal company in the state. Um, she's going to shamelessly break up his marriage. She like shamelessly suggests him. She gets the man, but she's not happy, so she suggests the guy who's got the biggest coal company in the, hun- the country, this kind of old guy. And she shamelessly chases after him. And at the same time, she's also shagging his butler. Or not his butler, his uh, chauffeur. And what's amazing about the film is, like, first of all, it gives you a character who is like shameless who's like self-serving, who's totally selfish, but actually she's so enjoyable to watch. And you're quite happy to cheer her on because the men around her are just such idiots 
who uh, are just hypocrites, you know, like are they're the ones cheating on their wives. They're the ones who are quite happy to go along with her. Um, and what's also really refreshing is she gets away with it. You know, what would happen when the Hayes Law was enforced was you couldn't get away with that kind of thing. You couldn't get away with like being indecent. You couldn't get away with committing crimes. So what would happen to you is either the woman would have to be punished in some way or she'd have to reform. So there's lots of gold digger films in Hollywood, but usually the women always realise, actually, I do love the guy anyway, so it's fine. Or it'll be something like Fatal Attraction where, you know, you break up a marriage, but at the end you die, you know? Like, that's how it is. But back back then, just people got away with it. So it's really entertaining. Um, I would say just go out and see all the other pre-code films. There's uh, Blonde Crazy plays this week. Uh, Babyface is the week after that. And then Jill Robbery, which is probably the best in the bunch, actually. That plays uh, in two weeks' time. So sounds like some vintage girl bossing. It sounds a little bit like a kind of sexy Daniel Plainview, like going <laughs> around and stealing everyone's coal. I mean, yeah, you, you drunk my milkshake, yeah, basically, yeah. And, and he got away with it as well. She doesn't bludge at anyone in the head. Oh, actually, I mean, she does try and kill the guy. So, I mean, I didn't don't want to spoil the ending, but she does. It is basically Daniel Plainview. Thing. Yeah, I don't want to spoil the ending of that. Although post facto spoilers for there will be blood in the preceding <laughs> sentence. Um, so that's uh, is that a film house that pre-code season? Or yeah, it, well, it, it played at GFT. It's kind of finished at GFT now, but it's going to be playing at Film House all throughout October. Good stuff, Lewis. What have you been watching? Uh, I've not been out much to the cinema. I, two weeks ago, I think I went to go see Moon Age Daydream at um, the Glasgow Science Centre's IMAX screen, uh, which Scotland's I... biggest cinema, I believe they say. Well, yeah, depending on your definition. Well, well, well biggest cinema screen. Probably. Yeah, it's not the biggest multiplex. Yeah. It's like one, and yeah, there's like one I, massive. There's, screen. I think, there's, I think one vat of popcorn and one hot dog roller thing for the customers. Um, it, it's, it's a little bit, yeah, it's a little bit cramped before going in, but uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's the thing where it's like, you know. I know loads of people I'd recommend this to, but it is kind of like a you must absolutely go out and see this film. It's a cinematic experience. I, I don't know if it would play a well at all on a streaming service, even though that would definitely get more eyes on it. But like, it's got cool trippy visuals. It's got these remixes that like really absolutely like pound you into the seat. Um, they're they're so sort of well done and they're so immersive. Um, and it's got like really good scope. It covers David Bowie's career. I kind of thought they'd just drop off after Ziggy Stardust because that's obviously the most popular of his eras. But it really does take you all the way through the late 70s into the 80s into the 90s. So it's pretty impressive if you, you've got a few sort of beloved niche David Bowie records that you want to see come I to would, life. I would say it overlooks some. His early kind of drum and bass tin machine era is definitely not. The, the <laughs> 90s does get absolutely shafted. Like I think that we we do like some hello space boy which i was quite impressed with but like it does go into like you know what exactly went wrong in the 80s why you know uh modern love wasn't playing well with critics and stuff like that i I did think they just sort of give up after the berlin trilogy but they do last out a little bit longer than i thought they would yeah i i somewhat like this film i think sonically it's amazing mm-hmm. uh, Tony Visconti who um, produced a lot of his records comes back to do all the sounds and it sounds incredible for me though I got a bit worn down by it because the director Brett Morgan he does the same thing over and over again so you get like a really cool sequence where you'll get like Cracked Actor which is one of my favourite songs he'll, he'll, he'll combine it together really well with like visuals they cut in lots of like images from like old movies mm-hmm. like lots of, kind of old sci-fis and things like that like Metropolis and uh, so really cool but then you'll go from that straight on to like you know Aladdin saying and it's like almost exactly the same and it's like mm-hmm. there is no 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 change I think especially when you're making a film about this chameleon who's constantly changing the film was just for me very samey even though it's like taking all this amazing music it was just the present presentation was kind of so similar yeah every so often it kind of all explodes and then goes dark and then like we open back up with like a sort of piano medley from Hunky Dory or something like that. But that really only happens a couple of times and it is ultimately like just a sort of stairway to get us to the next big rampant remix of uh, one of his more popular rock songs or something like that. So yeah, it can get a little bit like samey and a little bit like they don't really know what to do with the content they've got. I also think you should probably only go if you like David Bowie or know about David Bowie because it doesn't really tell you anything about him doesn't tell you about like it doesn't give you any dates on the bottom it doesn't... I wouldn't say that's true I would say that they like they 
do a little bit of like sort of digging into his relationship with his mother, his relationship with his half brother, how these figures influenced him. But like you know, things like he had a son. There's no mention of like, well. his son. <laughs> like you know, like like lots of bits of his biography are just totally missing. This is something that I predict about this film is that like everyone will go in expecting a different thing out of it because everyone has like quite a different relationship with David Bowie and and what they think is integral. I've already seen people online complaining that there's not enough like Mark Ronson or Mark Bolin in it. Um, Mark Ronson? His guitarist from Spiders from Mars, who he had like a very sort of, a very iconic chemistry with that doesn't get discussed in the film. Not Uptown Funk, Mark Ronson. Yeah, I was... Is it Mick Ronson? Mick Ronson. That's the name. Mark Ronson is the uptown punk guy who does who shockingly does not appear in this David Bowie documentary. Insufficient Mark Ronson in this David Bowie biography. Yeah, I mean, there's like a mention of like Brian Eno, you know, like. Yeah. So again, like you know, it it, it I think that it will be kind of I think that it'll divide people, but I think that it is still like a really fun event. I guess the good thing is there's no the only voice you really hear is Bowie's. It's mm-hmm. like it takes loads of archive of Bowie, so it's like Bowie talking about himself, basically. Yeah, there's no like talking head testimonies or anything no. like that. There's no retrospective. So it's still on in cinemas, I think. Uh, Moon Age Daydream. Um, you'll probably be able to catch screenings of it in various places. Yeah, Google shows that the day this podcast comes out, it is showing in Everyman, Cameo, Cineworld, and probably in Glasgow too. I'm not sure when that'll end. But you'll still be able to catch it if you want to. Is it not also incredibly long? Yeah, it's pretty long. I didn't think that I was too fatigued by it, but you went to go see it like late at night. Yeah, so. it's like I think it's two and a half hours. Um, I mean, it's like I think Bowie did. That was a long documentary. I just think it would have been more enjoyable for that length if it would if it modulated a bit and was a bit different and sort of changed its tone a bit. It's yeah. just one for me. It was just one tone. Well, I've not seen it, so I can't speak to that. Mm-hmm. But what I've been watching, so I've had a few things. Uh, since we last spoke, but I wanted to ask you guys about Grand Budapest Hotel and whether you agree with me that it might actually be the best Wes Anderson film. No. I, oh, right, okay, well, let me finish. <laughs> um, I think that it's it's my favourite of what I'm calling cheat code Wes Anderson. You are a very rich, fancy boy with loads of friends and loads of props. You're basically playing indie filmmaker, football manager, or The Sims, but with all the cheats on, so you have, like, an unlimited budget. And I think the reason that I think it's the best of those ones is because Ray Fiennes is just a better actor than a lot of the usual Wes Anderson people. Like, his performance in Grand Budapest Hotel has so much more to it than a lot of the Owen Wilson and um, Jason Schwartzman kind of... (laughs) performances that you get in a lot of these Wes Anderson films where everyone feels a bit like they're just along for a jolly, which is probably because they are, because they're just on holiday with their fancy boyfriend. But, Jamie, you were very quick to say that Grand Budapest Hotel isn't the best Wes Anderson, so why don't you stand that up? <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, I'll give you Fiennes. I think Gary Fiennes is amazing, in it. Like, and that's probably the reason that it kind of works. I just think um, it, it, this has got to the point where Wes Anderson, I feel like his he works best now, maybe as a stop motion animation filmmaker. Because mm-hmm. I feel like what he does with his actors now is like it's like stop motion. There's like it's totally airless. I feel like he's directing. It's so over directed, you know. Like it, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like we're watching a real movie. And I liked his earlier films because they're a bit looser, like something like Rushmore. It's kind of loose. It's it's in the outdoors. It's like like it's got like funny slapstick. This is like a bit more kind of rigid. Um, and it looks beautiful, but it's got, it's got all the kind of story within story within story. Like it's all these kind of nested stories within each other. And I just, to me, that is not as enjoyable as because it's more kind of straightforward earlier things. And I think that kind of really attention to detail style filmmaking works with Fantastic Mr. Fox or Ella Dogs. I don't think it quite works as well in these kind of... Um, yeah, and, and these kind of live action films. I kind of agree with that. I hadn't really thought about it before, but I, it was like always a bit surprising to me that Wes Anderson was such a such a prolific director of live action, but also animated films. And like, there's not a lot of directors who can very easily move between those two. But like, when you're watching Fantastic Mr. Fox, yeah, it's kind of this visual style that really complements the way they move in Grand Budapest Hotel. It it's a lot more, I think. I think it's a lot more stylistically suited to his kind of direction. Mm. Um, the the sort of grittiness and, and strangeness of it all. Wes Anderson is very much the kid who absolutely loved those Dorling Kindersley books where they show you what the inside of a planet looks like. <laughs> One of the things that I find irritating about Wes Anderson sometimes is you do feel like you've stumbled across upon an incredibly fancy little boy's playset <laughs> and he's convinced people to give him tens of millions of pounds 
in order to, you know, do real life action man with all of his little buddies. Uh, don't get me wrong, I think he's amazing, but I think sometimes, especially when you get such good actors, I, I, I guess I want a bit of spont- spontaneity. Yeah. You know, I feel like like the, the most, for me, sometimes the best films feel like, oh, I mean, it might be perfectly scripted to the T, but it feels natural. And I think sometimes when I watch a Wes Anderson film, it doesn't feel natural. It feels like too over-directed. Mm. Well, The Grand Budapest Hotel is available to stream and other Wes Anderson films are also available to stream. So you think, do you think Fantastic Mr. Fox is the best one? Uh, I would say, yeah. Of, like the later like, one. I would say, I would say about that. I actually really like Moonage, uh, what's it called? Not Moonage Daydream. That's Moonrise Kingdom. Moonrise Kingdom. Because <laughs> um, again, I think maybe it's something to do with like that one's set outside. It doesn't feel as controlled, you know, like uh, like they're all on the, the beach. and So it's got the, the bits where it's in the house and, you, and he's got that kind of little play box style, but there's also scenes on the beach in the woods, and it feels a bit more kind of loose, maybe. Um, he's also working with kids in that one, so maybe they're a bit harder to direct, and, and they can be a bit more kind of natural. I don't know. Uh, that's one I like. I like, uh, and I like the animations. Yeah. Lewis, favourite Wes Anderson? Put you on the spot. Favorite, uh, fantastic Mr. Fox. In, in the way that, like, I, kind of watching it, I felt like very invited to try and decode his very detailed way of directing, like all of the incredible symmetry and parallels that he has on the screen at all times. But at the same time, I kind of thought like, if I'm not bothered with this, I can just kind of like let my brain go and still really enjoy the the, the visuals and, and the sort of strange chemistry between the characters. Um, the Cine Skinny Wes Anderson retrospective coming to you soon. Yeah. Also love the third chapter of uh, his most recent film, uh, Fresh Dispatch. Uh, which, which is um, the kind of James Baldwin style. Yeah. Uh, but then when we talked about the French Dispatch, we got into a big thing because everybody who was discussing it all had different parts of it that were their favourite parts. So we ended up that. I mean, we can go down that road again, but not right now. We've got other things to talk about. Girls, 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 uh, which is a kind of Finnish teen drama. It's about these three Finnish teenagers exploring love and sexuality as a kind of long Finnish winter sets in. So you've got Emma, who's a competitive figure skater trapped in a loop of endless practices and expectation from other people. Mimi, who is like an outsider who's estranged from her mum and viewed with detached and slightly horrified suspicion by all her classmates. And Ruka, who is just trying to find a guy who makes her feel anything this is one of these films that has kind of done the rounds at film festivals has been very well received and kind of falls into that category of sex positive and more like progressively cast kind of coming of age dramas jamie what did you think of the girls 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 film uh yeah i thought it was kind of really good actually uh yeah um bearing in mind before we start we're the ideal people to talk about this. <laughs> girls, girls, girls. Yes. Boys, boys, boys talking about girls, girls, girls. Um, I guess... I mean, that girls Aloud starts playing incredibly loudly in the background. Yeah, I, I thought it was terrific. I, I guess it's kind of schematic. It's, you know, like you, like you say, what, how you laid it out. Like, this is about three young women, and they all have a problem, and guess what? They're all going to solve the problem Problem before the end of the film. You know, this, you know, this figure skater who, who's lost her mojo and can't do this jump. Uh, you've, you've got this uh, Mimi who is having trouble with her mother. That's going to be resolved. And then this, this young woman who is just not enjoying sex. Um, but what I liked is it's it's is, is just the, the performances. I thought that the three young women were really great. I, I thought they were kind of really well uh, drawn, um, despite the kind of plot being kind of film 101. Um, I thought because those performances are really fresh, the, the film just feel really zesty and fun. Um, I also appreciate it's just a really kind of small scale story. It takes place over three Fridays, so not a lot happens. Um, so nothing felt really overblown or overstated. I don't think it was saying anything, any grand, um, sort of making any grand statement about the youth of today or anything like that. It's really, I felt it was films about three young women. Um, yeah, and I just thought it was kind of moving. You know, I, th- I think like an American film about teenagers tend to be. The teenagers either seem to be either really super precocious or they sound a bit like adults. I thought these three teens sounded like teenagers. You know, they were they weren't kind of wise before their years. They were flawed kids who were making mistakes and working through shit. They're kind of in this kind of, I don't know, were they seventeen, eighteen? So they're that kind of on the cusp of being adults, but they're still kind of teenage girls basically. 
Um, I thought it looked great. It's shot in this kind of 4-3 framing with handheld cameras, which gives it a really intimate feel. Um, it felt kind of fresh and modern um, in a way that, you know, like I say, teen movies can sometimes be really nostalgic. I feel like quite often it's the directors looking back in their teen lives, and I didn't really feel that. I felt like, oh, these feel like modern women that I might meet, you know, on the street. Um, yeah, and I... I, I like I say, the, the plot is schematic, but actually, it's not always like. For example, so is it Roka? Um, her plot is is it kind of is kind of the side plot. The main plot really is the other two women, but like Roka's goes in this these kind of mad adventures where she's basically trying to get laid but enjoy it. She's just a young woman who's just not having fun, having sex, because um, she's basically connected with all these clueless teenage boys who don't know, how to, you know, don't know how to treat her right. But uh, but what I like is it's not like it doesn't really resolve that either. It's saying, okay, maybe life doesn't get resolved. Maybe I still have to work at it as well. So it's so it's not actually as schematic as it first seems. So yeah, I, I thought there was lots of lots to, to like about it. It's also nice to see another film about female pleasure straight, straight after um, Good Luck um, with To You, Leo Grande, which we talked about a few months ago. Um, that was a woman who's older, but this is a younger woman who's just basically not getting a lot of sex. She's horny. She, she knows what she wants, but she, she's not finding satisfaction. So that was a really interesting thing to see, which you don't really usually see on screen, you know. So I thought it was pretty good. I agree that the direction is really good. I actually really liked some of the kind of glimpses into, you know, your day-to-day life. And there's, it, like, it nails some expressions of youth, like singing along to songs in the car with your friends. Like, that, that you know, is really, evo- like, it, it's really realistic, you know, but... Other times, not so much. Um, the weakness is definitely in the script for me. I think that it's, like, a little bit tropey. And you know how you don't know something's a cliche until you've seen it done the millionth time? There's a, a scene where we have our, our two characters, and they're, like, um, I think uh, Mimi is is watching Emma do some figure skating in a car park. And then Mimi says, let's go. And Emma says, where? And then we cut to them kissing in the middle of a nightclub. And then we, that's like a three second shot and then we cut to the morning after. And it's like, why do they have to go to a nightclub to kiss? And it's because it's like, that's the thing in romance films now, right? You kiss in nightclubs. That's the most romantic setting for a kiss when they could have just kissed in the car park. Well, like also people do make out in nightclubs. I don't think that's- They do make out <laughs> in nightclubs, but I, it's, I find it very strange that the plot's like, okay, we're going to a nightclub now to kiss and then we're out of the nightclub well, because we've kissed. Because they have to have a date. You don't just make out with something you've just met. You, well, have, to, you have to have I'm like a night say, together. I'm just saying that like the, the young, the, they're going to get drinking. What you're describing, like the, the, that enjoyment you'd get out of it, it would be more endearing if we saw this date rather than just were told that it went well and that they're connected to each other. I could sort of see where the plot was going very quickly with this aspirational figure skater who meets this kind of badass smoothie barista. And as it turns out, one has quite controlling, overly present parents and one has very absent parents. And they do that thing in in romance films where in the third act, their good relationship has to fall apart and only so that they can sort of rebuild it and and prove that they're, you know, really there for each other. And that sort of happens really quickly and sort of out of nowhere. Whereas, um, what's it, is it Ronco? Ronco. Her, her, uh, her story, like, explores the much less covered turns of this asexuality plotline where she doesn't get a lot of pleasure out of sex and feels like something's wrong with her. And that doesn't have as many tropes to borrow from because it's less covered ground. So I sort of felt like a lot of the time we're just cutting back to her repeatedly having sex with the same kind of guy and it doesn't go well in the same way. It's not the same kind of guy. I'm going to stick up with this film. (laughs) One guy is like a rich smoothie who... Maybe actually quite good at sex, but it's 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 she who ruins the day because like she makes it all mechanical. Then she, then she hooks up with this kind of young sweet guy who you think in any other movie that would be the perfect guy for her. But actually, she says maybe we'll just better be friends as well. I thought that storyline had lots of like layers and something. I think that it had like again like I think it was pressing into a kind of undiscovered country where asexuality and and these sort of feelings of asexuality are not covered in big popular movies. And I I really applaud it for doing that. I just think that like maybe they didn't really know where they wanted to go with it. Maybe it's hard to depict just how how it looks to come to terms with your... become secure with your own sexual preferences when the whole point is that everyone that you hook up with is not doing it for you. It did feel a little bit like we were 
just sort of like disappearing from a very well-tread, very tropey plotline to one that didn't really know what it wanted to do. It felt like watching a TV series on Fast Forward. There was a lot of... you For a film that was about these female friends, why is nobody texting anybody? Why is nobody like check? People would go off on, like Mimi goes off on this date with Emma. And I know that the point is that you get swept up in romance and you don't ask people what you should do and you don't check because you just want to go with the moment. But it did feel strange that for a film that was all about these kind of very intimate relationships, that at certain points in the film, there just was no communication between characters. I also felt it was very, it felt very specific to like a Finnish teenager's life. This idea of it just being like constantly nighttime the whole time. They're clearly like this specific group were having all these massive house parties and stuff. And like, that's cool, but I am not a Finnish teenager. So I'm probably not the right person to ask about this film. I also like, just as a complete aside and dig, I did like the fact that you talked about how they weren't particularly precocious, but Mimi, who is by far the most precocious of the lot of them, name drops some films that they could watch, and one of them is The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, the film which Jamie, on the last episode of the podcast, yes. flagged up as a film to watch instead of the film that I liked. So I was like, I'm gonna, I've, it's the first note on my list, it was almost my only note, and now I've got it out there. But that's, yeah, that's a really some. funny conversation, because she also says, is it a bit like the last, um, last year in Marion Bad, which is the last film they watched, which is Anne Renee's like, really... Uh, ex- esoteric avant-garde film and it's like it's funny because like she doesn't want to watch it because like, <laughs> like you made me watch a boring film last night I don't uh, I think it's a nitpicking the reason it's night is because like the film is set over three no, Friday nights I'm not saying and that like, I'm not saying that it's bad because it's set at night time I'm saying <laughs> I'm not saying that like it's not realistic or it's not like I'm not getting into that kind of nitpick I just felt like it didn't speak to me it then just didn't surprise me with anything. It didn't have anything in it that I really felt was particularly... not gr- Groundbreaking is probably the wrong word, but I just didn't feel like the plot beats or the characterization were particularly groundbreaking. But then I understand that that's not the point of this kind of film. So I think maybe this is one where it's just... I just didn't get it. I'm in the wrong. There you go. I think that, like, again... I detected these kind like, you know, to use the example, there's more than one time that we're singing along to songs in the car. And I think that actually just really works. I think that's really relatable and it doesn't necessarily like, box you into this. You will only get it if you're a Finnish teenager. Um, so I think that there is definitely, you know, I think that the director there do- has sort of found something that can really create a feeling, can really create a response in nearabouts anyone that takes you back to, oh, when you're like a teenager goofing off or whatever. But other times, just not so much, the, you know, particularly with the writing. Like, I think there's at one point where someone says something like, oh, you've got the face of a vegan who just realized what they ate was ham. And there's someone says, oh, I'd rather watch all the live action Disney films rather than go to this party. Uh, it's like someone's Googled relatable things that teenagers say, which is the quickest way, I think, to make something sound not relatable at all. I read that as just Finnish people do have a what's quite strange sense of humour. Having spent a little bit of time in Finland, I find there's Finnish people are a bit strange. Yeah. I've got to say, they are a little bit weird and they do have fun, a funny sense of humour. So some of those jokes went over my head. <laughs> I'm sure they, they slayed in uh, Helsinki. So that's, that's yeah. So, yeah, I, I also think that, like, sometimes it's just not that deep. Like, sometimes you just like a film, and sometimes you just don't. Mm-hmm. Much like in relationships, sometimes you just like someone, and sometimes you just don't. That's tied that off quite nicely, hasn't it? Straight off the top of the head. Anyway, Girls, Girls, Girls is out now. It's playing at the GFT from this Friday, and it'll be at various other kind of, like, indie cinemas. Go and check it out if it sounds like your kind of thing. Okay, now it's time for a classic cine skinny jarring whiplash tonal shift from three lovely Finnish teenagers just trying to find love in a extremely dark place to a guy who loves extremely dark places. It's uh, Brian M. Ferguson, the Glaswegian kind of horror director who we have a kind of long history with at The Skinny and we are running a retrospective of 
some of his short films as part of the Cine Skinny Film Club, a thing that exists. So we're doing two screenings of a kind of collection program of his short films as put together by Jamie Dunn uh, at Summer Hall in Edinburgh on the 13th of October and at CCA in Glasgow on the 25th of October. And at the Glasgow one, Brian's going to be there to answer any questions that you might have. And believe me, once you've seen some Brian M. Ferguson films, you are going to have some questions. So, Jamie, do you want to briefly outline what a Brian M. Ferguson is and what kind of films he makes with some key kind of uh, soundbite kind of points to outline the kind of thing that he does? But no pressure. (laughs) Well, I I first became aware of Brian's films when Skinny launched a short film competition back in, I think it was like 2014 or 2015, around that time. Uh, and basically his film won it. It was, it was called Caustic Gulp, but it stood out because it just looked completely different from the rest of the films that entered. It was colourful, it was vibrant, it was shot in Florida. It concerned a group of people who were like experimenting with like drinking chlorine to make them more powerful or like impervious to pain. Um, so it's kind of weird, you know, it's kind of weird, but it looks really interesting. It's funny talking about... Um, uh, about uh, Wes Anderson. He's got a very fastidious style. Like the thing about Brian is his films. You can tell it's his films straight away. Like he's he takes such care with like production design and performances, and they have a real kind of like just specific look to them. So um, Brian won that competition, uh, and then from that we commissioned to make a new film, and boy did he deliver. Uh, contest because I believe you were on that screening. I don't think I was in the screening, but I've heard this. So he's told the story a number of times. So he made Caustic Gulp, which uh, won this competition that we ran. So then we gave him some money and some resources, and he got a slot at Glasgow Short Film Festival the following year. The film he came back with was Flamingo, which is about a woman who becomes like interested in self-amputation. And Brian's told this story a number of times about how multiple people fainted at the screening, at the premiere screening at GSFF. Um, I'm sure he was on like a BBC, like BBC Scotland's The Social thing on YouTube, talking about his career. And he was like, oh yeah, I did this thing, put on this film. Uh, Multiple people walked out, two people fainted. And he was like, I just felt really glad I didn't have to do, I didn't have to stand up there and explain myself at a QA and a afterwards. So he's a guy who's very into like the, the kind of, sort of in a similar way to David Cronenberg, very into the body and, like, expressions of the body. And, yeah, his film, like, his visual style is very colourful and very... I don't want to say artificial, but there's, like, a level of artifice to a lot of the framing and, like, colour grading in his films. Yeah, super stylish, very visceral as well. Like, I think that's why people fainted at Flamingos, because... It's funny because if you look at the scene, it doesn't actually you don't actually see anything. It does that trick from um, from Starship Troopers where it kind of puts a sensor over uh, what happens because what happens is it's about two people who have some sort of amputation fetish, a woman who wants to amputate an arm, a guy who wants his arm to be amputated. They get together. It's like a romance, it's, you know. It's a meet cute, you know. It's like, a, but and it ends with bloody violence. But it kind of senses that out, but it's just so, the sound design is so good. The 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 special effects are so good. He, he, like he's making films with no budget, but he, he kind of manages to make make it sound great and look great, and he, he gets these effects that kind of work. They're kind of practical effects, but they just like they're old school, but they just work. And it really worked on this audience because the two guys who fell the fell over were burly guys. One of them was out for about five minutes. It's like a six foot four kind of rugby player type guy, and uh, he was just like so embarrassed that he fainted. But it's like yeah. It, it really worked on people. Um, but yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. But yeah, just like, yeah, his films are just visceral. That's what I mean. Like you can feel them, you know. Uh, and I guess that's maybe why he's also moved into doing a lot of video work. Like he's, he's done a lot of kind of great promos for like people like Arb Strap, um, The Ninth Wave, Alice Glass. That's where he's got a real kind of strength because he just knows where to put the camera, you know. He, the camera kind of glides when he uh, makes these these things. And it, it's got a kind of movie... Uh, uh, movie promo movie promo music video uh, music promo kind of style um so it, it made total sense that he's, he's kind of went on and been really successful um so we're giving him less time to work in like a shorter time frame it just amps up the speed as well the pacing so those music videos and also like the micro films that he has on his website that he did for like adult swim in channel four they're just so fast they're like a minute and a half each but they still contain that like vivid color creepy special effects 
that sort of strange body viscera stuff going on, but it is just like at a much higher RPM and you don't even have the time to faint. You just sort of get like absolutely blasted with how crazy it, it gets in such a short span of time. Yeah, because that's the thing that's really interesting about him on a kind of rewatch is that he is always able to do the kind of like creeping dread and sort of like hyper real stuff. But on things like Caustic Gulp and Flamingo, it's much more of a slow burn. Whereas if you give him 90 seconds and access to the kit that will allow you to do as many whip pans as you want, then he's able to like fit so much stuff into like a minute and a half. So his newest film, which is called Earworm, which I think is the one for Adult Swim, mm-hmm. is just, it tells a full kind of horror kind of like schlocky VHS horror story in about 75 seconds. And I don't even really think there's any... Is there any dialogue in it? Or is it mostly just like kind of... No, it's sound, so visual. Yeah, yeah, all visuals and then like sounds and some screaming. Spoiler. Um, but yeah, he's able to do... Because it isn't just like shock, viscera, guts all over the shop. Like, actually good storytelling as well as like I say, whip pans for days and loads of guys in weird costumes cutting about the shop. Lovely stuff. Yeah. Well, we've mentioned, like, I think David Cronenberg is probably an influence, especially in those early films, but I think you can actually, he's so prolific, you can see very quickly his evolution because his films have become a bit more gnarly. Like you say, those earlier films are much more kind of, the camera glides, they're kind of very, kind of, usually on a static camera as well, usually a lot of kind of like a, yeah, static frame shots, but but now the, the new one's really gnarly, and he, he has an interview in Skinny this month where he references Sam Raimi, and you can really see Sam Raimi in things like Earworm or Satanic Panic, which is the thing he made for um, Random Acts, which is about uh, two uh, teenagers who decide to kill their gran, but it's, like, it's just gnarly, it's fun, the camera is constantly doing something interesting. He made a little film called Insecticide on the uh, 20, uh, 48-hour um film project which which happens every year um I, i'm not sure how, how it did in terms of the competition but it's just like it's amazing it's like it's like uh you know it's like a kind of like gnarly horror movie with like no um no kind of like uh no money <laughs> and he's just making stuff but even in that tiny budget he can make something really interesting really creepy something that really gets under your skin they're like um if you it's gonna be a weird example but if you ever see like an advert that's really really well made on like daytime tv or something like that and because it's such it's so short but so visual it just sticks in your head that's kind of why advertisers look for that kind of thing whereas he has that skill but instead of like you know selling sill at bang or whatever he's showing people like eating each other or instead of using devil. his skills for evil he chooses to use them for maybe not good but well, he kind of points the finger really a lot yeah. of the time at like you know with satanic panic it's they've gotten this message from a television fitness program and with earworm it's this kind of like cassette tape that's people treat like music but it's just screaming demonic madness so like he definitely is kind of like poking fun at media and what media does to yeah. people but um just in such a short time frame that you really get all the information and it just sticks in your head. Yeah, no, it, it, the films are just funny as well. Like, yeah. they're, not, they're not just like purely horror. Like, like often, like they have like a real great punchline, or they're just like a real. They just sort of kind of zip about them. Sam Raimi is a great example because, like, yeah, I guess like something like Evil Dead Two is like probably a huge influence, especially the later stuff. Um, but yeah, they're they're funny. They're cool. Look great. Yeah. So, I mean, an hour in the company of Brian M. Ferguson's films is going to be a lot to take in. Bring your notepads. Yeah, putting together programs is going to be fun because you have to kind of, I guess you don't want to wear people down with all the brutal stuff, but you can always just insert those little tiny one-minute joke movies, you know, something like a toxic haircut where somebody goes to the barber and, you know, uh, know, it's like a very kind of witty joke, but it's like filmed so so kind of stylishly so yeah so it's gonna be fun sort of assembling yeah if you want like a one-line summary it is kind of like if david cronenberg and sam raimi were programming the whole of like an adult swim night crossed with a bit of like tim and eric thrown in as well because he does have this thing like he can work at all these different ranges and at these different scales big outdoor stuff really small like living room stuff short stuff long stuff so it's going to be a fun hour we're in for a treat. So our Brian M. Ferguson 
kind of retrospective. Yeah, it's at Summer Hall on the 13th of October and at CCA in Glasgow on the 25th of October. And if you want to come to either of those, go to theskinny.co.uk slash tickets or go to like Summer Hall or CCA box offices and you'll be able to get tickets for those there. And also at the Edinburgh one, we are following up with It Follows, the David's David Robert Mitchell, David Robert Mitchell um, horror about the teens who are trying to run away from a fatal uh, STC, sexually transmitted curse. So that's like, you know what? That's good programming. So good job, Jamie. Um, but yeah, you'll find all the info on those at skinny.co.uk slash tickets. And keeping with the same theme, which is to say horror films that you can watch all in one go, uh, All Night Horror Madness, the cameos kind of legendary lock-in for horror fans everywhere is back this weekend as we record the podcast. Um, but yeah, Jamie, do you want to just tell us, because you spoke to Matt Palmer, the curator and creator of All Night Horror Madness, do you want to just tell us a bit about what is All Night Horror Madness? Um, well, I guess Matt's kind of harkening back to like this, the kind of seventies, eighties. You know, when when you had like rep houses up and down the country, and they usually mix the program up between porn movies and like art house movies. But they'd always always do these kind of late night things where they show kind of five or six films throughout the night. You'd have a whole mess of people in there. You'd have like sort of homeless people kind of finding somewhere to sleep. You'd have younger people who were getting away from their parents and sort of going to smoke drugs or whatever, you know, like it was, it was usually chaos. And I think he's trying to recreate a sort of more tame version of that atmosphere. Um, but it's like, it's, it's bringing people together um, to kind of like enjoy these kind of old movies. And what he does is he usually um, takes movies from that kind of era as well. He's got a kind of rule. He was telling me during that, our interview that he kind of like late 60s to early 90s is his career for when he shows the films and that's basically when that boom was that kind of like grindhouse and boom which is obviously something that Tarantino's interested in and as well um it's also when Matt was coming of age so he came of age kind of like in the 80s that's when he got into horror so those are the films that he's really interested in um yeah and it's just a fun night we'll show five films um varying degrees of quality it'll go from like like actually masterpieces like proper canonical horrors to the shock that never like made it off the bargain basement shelves um and uh yeah he's unashamedly enthusiastic about both types um it was a fun chat because he, he basically confirmed my suspicion that the third film is always the crazy film in the program he, he likes to put like a really kind of weirdo movie um where bonkers things happen because that's basically the time of night where it usually arrives um, in the program at around 3 a.m. whenever he's a bit sleep deprived, um, and it's like it's just a bolt to the system. So these films are usually funny, bizarre, weird. Usually got lots of bad acting. Um, yeah, they just cheer you up with their craziness, basically. Um, but yeah, it's it's, it's 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 a really fun night. I think people really love it. He shows films on 35 mil, so it's it encourages all the kind of like cinephiles who are into that kind of stuff. But it, yeah, like I say, it's got all the gore hounds. Uh, there's a raffle in the middle of it where they give away posters and DVDs. It's great fun. Good stuff. And that is this Saturday, 8th of October at the Cameo Cinema in Edinburgh. But we thought in classic podcasting fashion that we would do a kind of like fantasy booking of our own All Night Horror Madness in case Matt decides one day that he wants to pass the reins on to this bunch of folk. <laughs> He sees Jamie's uh, Brian M. Ferguson retrospective and just walks up and hands you like the golden uh, like scepter covered in like fake viscera and is like, now you are all night horror madness. So we all went off and had to think about what kind of things we would want to program at our own all night horror madness. You can play along at home. Now, I don't want to jump the gun, but I've got something cracking for this third slot. So I'm not going to go first. So Lewis... If you were putting on a film for an all-night horror marathon, what would your first pick be? Out the gate, good film to start with. I wouldn't want to start with anything that's too traumatizing, but that still has a very unique visual language that people can get excited about, which is why I've chosen Killer Clowns from Outer Space, which 
is, like all good schlocky horror films, they're in the title. It's from 1987. It was directed by the Chodo brothers, who are three brothers who are not directors. They're special effects artists. It's the only thing they ever directed. They would often do... They did, like, the puppets for uh, Team America World Police, and they did the claymation part in Elf, the sort of Rankin-Bass throwback. So if you want people who are good at doing obsolete, outdated visual effects, these are the people. Um, And as such, that's what it is. It's this, like, ridiculous sort of full 50s um, horror B-movie where it's like, you know, teens at make-out point and then, you know, Farmer Jean sees something, some strange light in the woods. Uh, So it's not particularly, like, original in terms of plot, but it is just really fun to watch with a group of people. Like, the costumes are great. It's not just people in clown makeup. The clowns themselves are, like, these full sort of head-to-toe rubber molds of monsters with paint on them. Uh, and, you know, as we explore, they, they sort of, like, wreak havoc upon the town, so we cut away from the plot every so often just to watch these clowns, like, you know, shoot people with pop popcorn bazookas or, like, do some shadow puppetry that actually comes alive and eats people, or just they're running around the supermarket tearing stuff off the shelves and being dickheads. Like, it's a lot of fun, and then we go to their ship, and their ship is, like, this super strange... It's, it's a full soundstage that's, like, a funhouse sci-fi psychedelic stuff where they're, like, encasing their victims in cotton candy, so it kind of goes a bit alien-y. But it's just, like, such a delight. It is definitely, like, a, a, a strange, weird, one-of-a-kind film. The, the clowns are all such different designs. They have their own little visual personality to the point where when I was watching with a group of people, we started, like, picking favourites and cheering them on. So we would, like, cut, like, oh, yes, Bobo's back! Yeah, he's my favourite! He's killing everyone! Um, so very bizarre, not particularly scary, but still technically, technically a horror film. I'm pretty sure that's actually played at All Night Horror Madness. That's like def- so that's definitely the type of film Matt would have... Uh, program. I, I didn't go to that one, but I'm pretty sure I've seen it in the lineup before. It's it's got a bit of a cult following, yeah, because it's so weird. Yeah, and the, I've just looked it up. The good thing about Killer Clowns from Outer Space is that you can. Uh, so you know how Amazon has all these like. This is one of the things about these kind of like schlocky weird horror films is that the part of the appeal used to be finding them in like weird DVD shops or in like second hand like um like charity shop DVD sections. And now the equivalent of that is having to find them on weird niche streaming services. So the only thing you can stream Killer Clowns from Outer Space is MGM have their own streaming sub service on uh Amazon Prime. But just get a free trial, watch this and then chuck it away. Yeah, that's news to me. I saw it on Netflix for like when it was there for like a month a couple yeah. of years ago. So get it, get it in, get it for nothing, and then tell MGM to do one because you're not paying for a ninth streaming service. So that's your first film, a kind of canonical late night horror banger. Jamie, I feel like if anyone's going to have one that we haven't heard of and that would really like amp this night up a bit, it's going to be you. Oh, I feel really bad because I think I went for quite a mainstream one. But like, uh, so sorry, I went, I went for one of the most classic uh, horror franchises ever. Okay, wait a second. Jamie, I feel if anyone's going to be able to pull this background to something that everyone would appreciate with your knowledge of film, it's going to be you. What I want is something that I know about. Go. Okay, well, I, I went for... I mean, I've just been selfish. I went for like one of my favourite horrors when I was growing up that I just want to see on the big screen. That's basically my whole reason for it. But I think it would actually go down really well at this uh, screen because one thing that... All Night Horror has is a lot of comedy, mm. and this is a funny horror, but it's also really terrifying. So I went for, and it's a, it's a film I mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago, if you remember, Nightmare on Elm Street Three, Dream Warriors. Um, that's like, like, well, first of all, Nightmare on Elm Street. I is, thought he was just going to say Halloween. <laughs> I didn't think it was going to be like Nightmare. Psycho. On, yeah. <laughs> well, like, I mean, Nightmare on Street, Elm Street is my favorite slasher movie, fl- slasher series anyway, because. It's just so inventive. I think every, even the bad ones, they always find a fun way of like imagining Freddy invading somebody's uh, night, uh, nightmare, you know? So it always has a real kind of visual invention, which a lot of slasher films don't have. So something like Halloween. I love Halloween, but by Halloween 5, I'm sorry, Michael Myers can only do a few things and like that becomes dull to me. Whereas Freddy, he can do anything, you know? And that's what I love about this. Um, so this film is the third film in the series. 
Wes Craven, who created the series and um, sort of directed the first one, is back to write it. He wrote the script, um, and then it was tidied up by Frank Darabont. Now, Frank Darabont is a really good director. He made um, The Shawshank Redemption. He also made The Mist, which is a film also considered for this list. Um, so he went in and tidied the script up and made it a lot better, um, adding a lot of the jokes, I think. And then it's directed by uh, Chuck Russell, who's a really underrated director. He made The Blob, which is another film that would work really well in this series. That's like the remake of The Blob from the 80s. But he also made Mask, which is one of my favourite films as a kid. So there's something about this guy, there's something about his direction that appeals to me. Um, but he just finds so many amazing creative sequences in this film, you know. So Freddy turns into a TV and murders a kid who's into TV, you know. He, he, uh, there's, there's like, the plot is um, a lot of these young people who are all the descendants of the people who murdered Freddy um, years ago, are being haunted by him. And they've all been put in this mental asylum because they are all going crazy, that they don't know what's happened to them. And uh, Heather Lingenkamp, who was Nancy in the first film, appears as a counsellor and she's helping these kids. And what she does is she teaches them how to fight Freddy. And it's another thing I like about um, horror movies. I like horror movies where people fight back. I'm quite into that. Like, I hate horror movies where it's just, like, someone running constantly and it's like, oh, uh, the boogeyman's quite slow and I'm going to run a bit more. It kind of gets a bit repetitive, but here they say, no, we're gonna not going to be terrorised by Freddy anymore. We're going to go into the dream. We're going to use our special powers that we have in the dream. You know, it's, a, it's kind of like a... I think that's probably why I appealed to me as kids because you have all these kids who are, like, bullied and put upon, but in the dreams they have all these amazing powers, you know? So, like, uh, yeah... So I, I love it for that. I love all the kids. I love the cast. It has like Patricia Arquette in her, one of her very first roles. Um, she's she's really likable. Um, but yeah, I just like all the kids. And it's, it's another thing about slasher movies is sometimes the mistake is they make everyone horrible. And actually you enjoy following Michael Myers as he slashes through all these kids because they're just boring and they've got no personality. But here I like everyone. And I kind of want them to win. But when So what happens is when they do get killed, because some of them do get killed, is really tragic because it's like oh my god I love that, that little kid and it's and they've just been killed but but then when they fight back it's amazing so it's got everything it's got it's it's, it's got um Freddy is also getting into the his one liners I mean one of the big criticisms of the Nightmare on Elm Street series is it become just too camp and too too kind of jokey but this is a kind of real this is the high point where it was right at the right point where it was still really scary and it had enough um oomph and sort of bite, but it also is really funny. So I think it would work really well. It's got just just tons and tons of one-liners um, throughout it. Um, so it's super entertaining. So we've started with one that's almost exclusively laughs, and now we're moving into one that's really fun, but also quite scary at points, and also gets like quite a rise out the audience. Yeah, and it's got some really gory, interesting death scenes. You know, like okay. uh, because, like I say, you can do anything in dreams. So the way Freddy murders these people is so inventive, you know, and it's like, and it it's scary, but also you you just marvel at the special effects. So, yeah, I love Dream Warriors. So, how are we going to follow that up with our iconic third? We're going to mess them up a bit. So the the thing that I thought was a good spot for this because if you start at eleven, first film finished about half twelve, pee break, second film start about quarter to one. So now you're into like two. 2.30, you need something that's going to jolt people. And that's why I have gone for a Takeshi Mike film, but not Audition and not Ishii the Killer, but 2001 zombie musical horror comedy, uh, The Happiness of the Kachikuris, which is a film about a family who take over this like kind of small, almost like a B&B, but it turns out the B&B is haunted and kind of like infested with zombies. And the film is told in a combination like horror, comedy, musical with stop motion animation. It's got at least one scene that's like a karaoke scene where you can like sing along with the cast. So Takeshi Mike is a guy who has made like hundreds of films and like was in like really at kind of at the forefront of that sort of like Japanese run of like kind of second wave of video nasty kind of things in the 2000s and but this is just such a weird odd I remember first watching it at uni which would have been like a good 10 12 years ago and even now you still occasionally think like 
wonder how that family are getting on. From it's like it's such an odd bit of filmmaking from a real kind of like a really strange director with a very like unique sensibility and something it's just one of those films where if you put it on in this kind of format at this time of night people would be confused and scared and elated and genuinely wondering what in the hell was going on and that's what i want jamie is to confuse people that's my angle what do you reckon? I mean, I'm confused. I actually haven't seen this one, but it does sound amazing. I I'm not for Takeshi Mike uh, every day, you know. So like, uh, but yeah, this sounds like it's more of his goofy because he because he does like because his films are either extremely disturbing, so audition style, yeah. or they're goofy as hell. And this sounds like one of his goofy. Yeah, he still has like some of his horror sensibility and like, but it's not a kind of super super gross out. Let's like tear this guy's trachea out and throw it in the air. Because Takeshi Mike has made those kind of like really quite unpleasant films, it then if you don't know what this film is, would put you in that situation where you're like, oh, that's going to be horrible. And then when it comes on and everyone's dancing, it's like a kind of, it's kind of a rip on the sound of music in parts. But it's also like it's got zombies and people with like scissors hanging out of their neck, and it's also got some like claymation. It's really weird and horrible. It's on Shudder just now, um, and. I think like Arrow Video have their own like streaming thing as well. You can get free trials of both of those, watch this one thing and then cancel them. <laughs> but yeah, the kind of film that we're like, it would just be incredibly confusing for people. And I love that. Wake you up. <laughs> exactly, wake you up. You get woken up. You're really confused as to what's going on. You think it's still a dream. You fall back asleep. It's not a dream. You wake up again. Who knows what's going on? Madness. What kind of madness? All night horror madness. <laughs> um, we got any other things that we would program on this, or? Well, I was going to put in one of my favourite horrors, which is Scottish. I thought it'd be nice to stick a Scottish horror in because I don't think there's ever you know Scottish horror playing. Maybe maybe Wicker Man or something might play uh, um, on a horror man. That's the only one that might have played there. But um, as I was going for, going for Dog Soldier, Neil Marshall's first film. Um, so like Jim Cameron's. Aliens, and like John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13, Neil Marshall's debut is a great action film, but it's also a great horror. Um, it's, a, it's about a kind of bunch of soldiers who are in the Highlands doing a sort of like TA kind of thing, like kind of outfit, who are kind of trying to, uh, like, you know, they're doing training. Uh, but they stumble across a pack of werewolves uh, while they're out in the Highlands, um, and they end up being held up in this kind of rickety old cottage until day breaks, so it's, so it's like a siege movie, and I love kind of that kind of thing as well. Like it's it's a it's a bunch of people hanging out, trying to survive. And the thing about a siege movie is, you have all these attacks of people trying to break in, but you also have the kind of calm before the storm. And I love all that. Like I love any movie where you just get a bunch of cool people together to chat, uh, and like sort of, yeah, you get like a, a big sort of suspense before the kind of big. Uh, the big gnarly finish. Um, it's just got like tons of great people in it. So it's like Sean uh, Pertwee is fantastic. It's got Lee, Lee Cunningham as a kind of like nasty English uh, soldier who's like sort of knows more than everyone else. And it turns out these soldiers have been used as bait because he actually knows about these lycanthropes. It's got an amazing twist about where this cottage is. Um, it's got amazing dialogue. There's a scene where somebody's been eaten and he says, I hope I give you the shits to these uh, monsters and the lycanthrope is actually really scary as well I, I don't quite know how they've done it but they seem to have found like basketball players or something to wear these <laughs> costumes because the, the, the werewolf costume look it's such long bodies I think that's what disturbs me more like these big lanky walking on all fours werewolves terrifying absolutely terrifying and they'll see like so it's proper scary as well uh, really funny moves really quickly it's like just got tons of pace but like i said it's got these amazing sequences of people just sit around in this cottage like fixing their wounds there's a few of them got a few bites and we know they're going to turn to werewolves soon so it's got all that kind of like all the cliches of a, a werewolf movie but it's just so well done you know it's funny i actually um put together some notes about another proposed film for this uh, marathon that is Scottish, a Scottish horror film, uh, Under the Skin by Jonathan Glazer, which I don't actually know if Jonathan Glazer is Scottish, but it's certainly set in Scotland and has Scottish actors. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's Scarlett Johansson plays this otherworldly being that drives around Glasgow and Edinburgh in a white van and sort of lures 
men into her dark abode and consumes them in a very creepy way. But it's sort of unique in that it's entirely unscripted, and a lot of the time she's speaking to these men outside of her van. They're just punters on the street who, when asked later how they didn't recognise Scarlett Johansson, said because they just assumed that it wouldn't be Scarlett Johansson driving around Glasgow in a white van. It also sort of, like, creeps up to the Highlands, and then it gets, like, more violent and and, and sort of frightening, and you never know whether or not you're supposed to empathise with this creature, or if you're rooting for her, or if she's really just super demonic. But um, I think that might pair well if, if, if you want to round that off with, a, with another Scottish film, finish it with something that's a little bit more... Uh, recent well-known i don't know because i've never seen dog soldier but it sounds really really cool i'm gonna say we send them home happy with the only thing you could do in this scenario wicker man remake (laughs) well i actually (laughs) i didn't bring it up but i do have notes on another nick cage film which is willie's wonderland which came out uh a year ago and it's essentially the video game five nights at freddy's it just completely steals the premise but it is a a film in which you can watch nicholas cage be the central character who has the most screen time but no lines of dialogue and just wears sunglasses and acts like a badass as he repairs a derelict Chuck E. Cheese, fights haunted animatronics and plays a very sensual game of pinball. Um, but the Wicker Man is a little bit more Nick Cage off the rails. I think you had me at sensual game of pinball. <laughs> <laughs> we will be back in two weeks I uh, don't know what we're going to be talking about, but probably more films, I would guess. Probably. I would probably. suspect. Maybe a, a TV show. Could, could be a TV show, possibly some kind of stage play involving film actors. Who's to say what could happen? Maybe we'll go off and start covering the art scene. Yeah. Uh, you know, now we've endeared ourselves to them by calling them all wankers. Maybe we'll rank our favourite TikToks. Yeah, I'd be into that. Nothing more horrible than that. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, there we go. Right, thank you very much, Lewis. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Cheers, Peter. We will be back in a couple of weeks' time. Bye-bye. Bye.